Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Welcome everyone. Shabbat Shalom. It's good to see everyone here. I know I am not your customary Friday morning rabbi. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner. For those of you who I have not met, I think I know most of the uh, faces here. Um, and I am just filling in for Amy this morning in our Torah study. So I am thrilled to be joining you to learn a little bit. This week, we are back in Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. Uh, as a recap from last week, last week we were in Parshat Naso. Um, I understand that uh, Rabbi Bernstein does the triennial cycle of readings. Um, this is, uh, generally I tend to skip and jump around within the Parsha, so I'm going to do a little bit of that today uh, with you all who are here to learn. Last week was Nassau. Uh, in the Parsha of Nassau, we had a lot of rules. We had laws about the priests, and we got this whole idea, this concept of Nazarites. Um, it was a special caste who took on vows uh, in order to be of special service. Uh, they refrain from drinking alcohol or having their hair cut in particular. Um, if you see under Samson in the book of Judges, he was sort of the famous Nazarite. But we get that set of laws laid out in Nassau. We also had the Birkat HaKohanim, the priestly blessing in the Parsha of Nassau. So these were just a couple of pieces. I love getting to read that piece just because it's amazing to read something that was part of this whole priestly temple system, this priestly blessing that has survived all the way up to us and is part of our liturgy now and is part of our prayer service now. So it's amazing to see the way in which Torah continues to live through generations. So this week we are in Parshat Baha'alotacha. Um, I'll give you all the chapter in a minute. I'm actually going to breeze through much of the Parsha uh, and start a little bit further into it. This Parsha, Baha'alotacha in Numbers, um, I'll tell you anecdotally, it's probably the most difficult for our bar and bat mitzvah students to pronounce uh, on the occasion of their b'nai mitzvah. It means this word, Baha'alotacha, in your ascent, all in that one word. Uh, and it has to do with, that, that word itself, with ascending to light the menorah that was of the temple service. And this menorah, this is not the Hanukkiah, so thinking about the Hanukkah menorah, the one where we have eight branches and then the one in the middle, I was, thank you, Bert, I was about to draw our attention to this menorah. You see this one in the corner there that has three instead um, on each side instead of four, so a total of six with the one in the middle. That's the old traditional menorah that was used in the temple. So if you ever see menorot like that and wonder, well, why doesn't it have enough for Hanukkah? This is why. It was actually entirely of a different purpose. So Baha'alotacha, the name of this parsha, is all about ascending to light that very menorah. Um, I want to continue, as I said, not start right at the beginning. I want to start a little ways in, um, because there's an amazing commentary on the nature of leadership and something fairly revolutionary that Baha'alotacha shares with us. So I'm going to skip over the first couple of chapters in this Parsha, just to tell you, just to fill you in on where we are. Um, th these chapters have pieces all about uh, the Levites. These were Aaron's people, the folks who tended and took care of the temple. So it has a couple of chapters all about the age limits and what ages they could be to serve in the temple. It has pieces talking about uh, their purity and how to purify the Levites, how they can purify themselves for temple service. And then we get the observance of the second, you could say it's the first 
uh, I'll say it's the second Passover holiday. If the first Passover was when they were actually in Egypt, this is the second one. This is the first time they are celebrating Passover as Israelites in freedom. So they are on the march, heading to the land, um, and the first time they actually come back around and get Passover and have a sacrifice to mark that and remember that time. It's sort of interesting to think about because on Passover we talk about living that story as if we ourselves left Egypt. That's our commandment to do. These are folks that actually did leave Egypt in the narrative. So it's interesting to imagine their first Passover. So they are on the move, as I mentioned. They are on the march, getting through Sinai into what is today geographically Jordan, um, on their way, winding their way up into the land. So I want to get into this part about the quality of Israelite leadership. As I mentioned, this Parsha has a really profound lesson about that. Before we jump into the text, I want to introduce a framework uh, that Sir Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was using to examine this Parsha. And he is connecting this Parsha to an essay written by Rav Joseph Soloveitchik uh, earlier in this century called The Lonely Man of Faith. In this essay, Rav Soloveitchik speaks of two Adams, two Adam, this man. Uh, he speaks of the Adam one, who is the creator and builder and this human force in the world of agency, of uh, really striving to make change and working to be an example, this exalted person. Uh, Rav Soloveitchik contrasts that Adam one with what he calls Adam two. He says Adam two is a completely different personality. This is the covenantal personality. Adam, too, lives in obedience to a transcendent truth, and I'm quoting from the essay now, guided by a sense of duty and right and the will to serve. So let me recap those two personalities. The Adam one, which is this agentive force of its own initiative. Uh, there's boldness to it in a way. Adam, too, is uh, perhaps the contrast to that. Person, the person who serves from humility, who serves as part of the covenant, as being in relation in this way, and does so um, does so with this sense of duty in mind, rather than one's own force. Um, Rabbi Sachs connects this these two archetypes to a recent book by David Brooks. If anybody knows the columnist from the New York Times, um, talks about David Brooks writes about different human virtues and talks about the resume virtues in contrast to the eulogy virtues. It's an interesting binary to think about the kind of ways in which we would think about ourselves or write about ourselves. Um, for me, this binary of thinking about human characteristics, I think about my time working at Hillel. As many of you know, before I came to KI, through all through rabbinical school, I worked at Hillel, the Jewish uh, Foundation for uh, college campus life. And a lot of that work was sort of gently pushing college students to step outside of their resume thinking and thinking about their resumes and their jobs and a lot of their pre-professional training uh, to examine somewhat deeper questions about who they were. Again, this is that same, I think it's nicely articulated by David Brooks, this same question of the resume virtues versus the eulogy virtues. Um, the other interesting thing is that both Rav Soloveitchik and David Brooks 
They raise questions about the extent to which either set of virtues, uh, to which, or the extent to which the resume virtues are elevated in America, given the nature of our society, the nature of um, our free markets and such. They both raise questions about the ability to which we can actually bring the eulogy virtues, so to speak, this Adam to that set of human characteristics into our public lives and into our public discourse. Does anybody have any thoughts about that piece? I just want to put that on the table in terms of what we're looking at. Yeah, Laura. I attended a high school graduation where the speaker, the student speaker, talked about this article on the eulogy virtues and the resume virtues. So here was an 18-year-old on the verge of college, and she was urging her peers to enhance those, what she, she described, and she listed kindness, loyalty, compassion, friendship. And so that was, I think, hopeful that an 18-year-old could be extolling those things before they even reach the level of the kids that you were working on. And it's, it's not to say that they won't be focused on these are high achievers, but um, there's, there's certainly... I think people will find, I've found professionally, that when I've been managed by people who have those eulogy virtues, I'm a happier worker, Mm. I'm more productive, I achieve more. Yeah. Yeah. uh, When I was thinking about retirement Mm -hmm. uh, during probably the last couple of years I worked, and I worked hard, and I was thinking about work a lot all the time. I went to several funerals. Uh, I attended several funerals. And at the funerals, there were grandchildren who spoke. And they talked about the most meaningful thing in their lives, about their grandparents, is they took them to soccer games, and they were there for them, and so forth. And so... I thought, and that was just at the time my oldest grandson was about to be born. So I thought to myself, oh, I want to be, <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to be the recipient of the eulogies of my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's really interesting the way you put it. I think there's an emphasis. I think there's an emphasis in elementary school, mm-hmm. some at least the private schools and the Jewish schools, on teaching kids, you know, the importance of being authentic and kind to people. I've, I've seen that. It certainly wasn't anything that was brought up when I was coming up through school. The emphasis was on good grades, almost with no direction. Just get those grades, and we'll see what you can do with it. So I think there's a change today. Sure. Did you yeah, for, the, for those of us who work inside of commercial structures, Mm -hmm. these two things clash very often. And one is in a society where the eulogy virtues are in general not admired and in general not expressed. And particularly if one feels responsible for the financial well-being of one's family, one is very often put in a tremendous bind. I'm not talking about doing something incredibly (coughs) immoral as opposed to not doing it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking (coughs) about making 
those choices which could very well result in less income and less support for the family and not as nice a school for the kids and whatever it is, um, and the eulogy virtues. And I think, uh, I, I can't speak for women because I'm not a woman, but I can speak for a lot of men that it is a very tough place to be, especially men who would like to live authentically practice what they preach, as it were, mm -hmm. to be who they tell their children to be. Um, so I, I, don't have the, I, I don't have the answer, and this is all tied up with how much is enough. Mm. How, much, how much is enough? And I think that in a society where, to a large extent, it's never enough. It's never enough. We're, we're always, it should be more. This puts uh, it makes it particularly difficult. Um, I think everybody would agree we want to live by the eulogy virtues, <laughs> uh, but it is it's it's tough, and one has to make one has to make choices, and they're not always really clear cut. Right. I guess that was my point. so. The excellent uh, points, particularly salient, given that we live in one of the most affluent areas of the wealthiest nation in the history of the world in terms of what we have amassed in terms of capital. Um, it's a remarkable discussion to be having to bring uh, this conversation to the table, perhaps even somewhat countercultural, given that an 18-year-old needs to declare this to her peers um, in a way. Do you have another point? I was going to say, I've been very fortunate because I always thought... Uh, I'm a homemaker and whatever it is that we But I, I'm not out there mm -hmm. the, because I think out in the world, it's very basically the law of the jungle. Who's the fittest, who's the strongest. Mm. And, and a lot of the choice men have to make or uh, women who are in the workforce for survival uh, are not always, as you said, it's not clear cut far or how much is enough or all of that that comes around. Yeah. I don't have to make these choices. I have other choices to make right. with, with the house. And to, to, to integrate that kind of idea of, 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 of uh, what the two laws that you were talking about mm -hmm. is to integrate because after, uh, after all I find that women who are staying in the house are the ones who are have tremendous power mm -hmm. with the children, especially the beginning when they start going to school and, and, and the kind of character that they will have for, uh, is something that is very, I, I think it's heavy to carry even mm -hmm. by myself, I would say, as a woman. The know. survival choices are easy. If, if it's survival, you know, yeah. if it's medicine for the kids, that's a pretty easy choice. The real problem is <coughs> when it's not that, mm -hmm. when it's a lot more subtle and a lot more different. And then... To what extent does one speak up, <coughs> again, as a male, in those situations? So, okay. excellent questions, and I appreciate your bringing in this piece about who it is who teaches these home, virtues. The, the basic character of a child, mm -hmm. which in the first seven years, I think, is a very important time where you find a basic character that he will have to use the rest of his life. Sure. Because Let's get one more comment, and then I want to get us into the text and start seeing what Bamidbar has to say about this conversation. Yeah. I had a little different experience. I worked for 
30 years in the aerospace industry, all male. And the, the managers, the CEOs, the division managers who were most successful had the, uh, uh, the virtues of uh, the eulogy virtues. In other words, they understood the needs of their people, they were respectful, and if, if, they, if there was a eulogy about them, mm-hmm. it would be both. They would mm-hmm. talk about their success, their resume success, but also the reason they were successful <coughs> resume-wise is because they, they work with people very well. So I think you can have both. An interesting point, too. Did you have something you want to add, or should we add? Um, no, go ahead. All right. Well, and don't worry. This could, this, we're not going to depart from this question today. We'll, this will continue with us. So we're going to jump into Baha'u'llah at this point. We are in Chapter 11 of the Book of Numbers. Chapter 11, at the very beginning, we're going to read the first uh, series of verses about the people, and then we're going to hear Moshe's response. Does somebody who has found the beginning of chapter 11, I'm in a different book than you all, so I can't give you the page number, but does somebody want to pick us up, start us reading, you could read a verse or two, and then pass it on to somebody else. It looks like page 855. Adonai heard and was incensed. A fire of Adonai broke out against them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to Adonai, and the fire died down. That place was named Taberah, because a fire of Adonai had broken out against them. The riffraff in their midst felt a gluttonous craving, and then the Israelites wept and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leaves, the onions, and the garlic. Now our gullets have shriveled. There is nothing at all, nothing but this manna to look to. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and in color it was like bedellium. The people would go about and gather it, grind it between millstones, or pound it in mortar, boil it in a pot, and make it into cakes. It tasted like rich cream. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it. Okay, so I want to just pause right there. So we have a great complaining, outcrying, um, upset from the people. Any questions or comments on this section? It's not the first time. They're, it's not the first time, and they're kvetching. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I looked. I have a note here. I'm looking out of the uh, JPS Torah commentary, which is a more academic, scholarly interpretation. It talks about this bedellium is, in Hebrew, bedola. It is a resin. So they're basically taking this ground-up resin and forming it into cakes that they're cooking. This is what the mana experience is. So... Perhaps it doesn't sound too appetizing. But it tastes like rich cream. Yeah, they have me at rich cream. All right, so maybe not so bad then. Maybe if the resin tastes like rich cream, maybe that's not too bad. Either way, though, um, the people are kvetching, and Ruben, as you pointed out, this is nothing new. Um, this is what we get here. Other, uh, any other pieces before we move on to Moses' response? I was just struck by the fact that there was perspective, and there was no gratitude. Right. Okay, there is a an absence of gratitude. I want to, parenthetically and tangentially, I want to apologize for the noise from whatever is happening with the ECC next door, the drumming or what have you. Um, but it's something that they're doing with the uh, the children. So, you know, for all for our youth. 
The other um, thing is they're going back to slavery and saying how wonderful it was because we good. had everything provided for us actually by the Egypt. Well, it's being provided now. The difference is it's being provided by God and it's kind of boring. But they are looking back and kind of forgetting the slavery piece. Yeah. So they're not saying, "Boy, are we glad we got out of there." I don't care what the food was like. I won't go back there for anything. An utter lack of gratitude, as you mentioned it, and they are looking back. It's boy, wasn't slavery great when we had all that great fish that the Egyptians would feed us, as opposed to the manna? Um, perhaps okay. a shell and garlic and leeks and onions, whatever else they're mentioning here. Um, Yes, you can lose perspective when you're hungry. Um, you can lose perspective when you're not hungry, in fact. Um, they do have this... Or when the food is boring. You can lose perspective at just being bored. <laughs> For anybody who has heard that from younger members of the family, we have to eat this again. Like, it's that same, uh, that same imperative. So, we're going to continue to hear Moses' response. Verse 10. Does somebody want to pick it up for us? Moses heard the people weeping, every clan apart, each person at the entrance of his tent. The Lord was very angry, and Moses was distressed. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not enjoyed your favor, that you have laid the burden of all this people upon me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I bear them, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you have promised on oath to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all the people? When they whine before me and say, Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all this people by myself, for it is too much for me. If you would deal thus with me, kill me rather, I beg you, and let me see no more of my wretchedness. Okay. Responses. That's an interesting response to the kvetching, as we heard. What's that? Super kvetching. Uber kvetching. That's right. What what do people make of this response? That Moses says, I cannot carry this by myself. This is too much for me. I would rather die than have and um, than see more of my own wretchedness here. His wretchedness in response to the confession. He thinks it's his fault. He thinks it's his fault. Absolutely. It brings the worst in him. We do that with our children. When they don't listen, it brings the worst in them. We have a response, and mm-hmm. we feel responsible. And he feels he has to fix this. Okay. He feels his weakness. Yeah. He says, I didn't make these people. What are you giving me all this stuff for? He feels his perhaps weakness, perhaps the word I might use is also limitation. Mm-hmm. He's not able to deliver all of this meat for these people. He doesn't have a mechanism by which to fulfill their desires. He feels very strongly the gulf between his limitation and this. Now, does this sound like the same leader that we had before in Egypt who stood tall to Pharaoh, let my people go, that dramatic moment? Does this sound like the same leader who uh, destroys the tablets of the Israelites at Sinai. Not at all, but I think that you can also go through an evolution if you've had to be so strong and brave and then and then reality sets in and I think it's really caring on somebody. Very, yeah, I mean, he also doesn't have the strength like he had before. Mm. Mm. 
Say more. Well, here he is, a leader. He's kung ho and he's not afraid of anything because he's got God to take care of him. And, and uh, as the uh, years roll by, <clears throat> he starts to age. Mm. Uh, physically, he can't do it like he did. Can't carry himself. Emotionally, he's starting with all the burden of all these people. Uh, that's where kvetching comes from mm -hmm. you know, in our culture. Um, it's, it's so overbearing. He should have stuck with advice, more advice from Yidro. <laughs> I was also struck by verse 10. Okay. The, Moses heard the people weeping, every clan apart, each person at the entrance to his tent. Even though it's his people, it sounds like everybody now is separate. There's no more... Interesting. Because the clans are all separate, and everybody's at his own tent. They're not, like, together. So I think that maybe is another fit, another failure of his. Mm, to keep the people together. An excellent point that perhaps a piece of this discontent is a feeling of dis, disunity, a lack of union amongst the people, this feeling of apartness um, feeding their, whether that is discontent or boredom, as was suggested. Um but perhaps that's a piece of what's breaking down in his leadership. Other thoughts? Or was that a hand back there? Oh, no, never mind. Well, no, I'm just, I think I'm, I'm mentally, emotionally agreeing with what's been said. And to me, it doesn't sound like a different leader. It's, it sounds like the leader who's exhausted and doesn't know what to do anymore. And, you know, is, is the, yeah, I, the, the parent who the baby's crying and this and that, and they just gotta lock yourself in the bathroom and say, What what can I do? I don't know what to do anymore. Yeah. I think this has to do with everyday responsibility to mm. keep people happy and going and well fed. Mm. Which is different than dramatic exit Absolutely. or rebellion mm -hmm. in, in a you know, in a climax kind of situation. This is, you know, he's not Costco. He can't supply everything. Not every day is the exodus mm -hmm. with all of what that entails and how epic that is. There is the every day also, yeah. He's acting very much like a parent who will uh, defend its cub, but uh, when he has to hear the... Uh, the child wailing and whatever, it becomes too much. Sure. And uh, what I see is like there's one parent mm -hmm. and a bunch of children. Mm -hmm. There's nobody mature enough to support him or give, me, give him some tips or something. I think you're, alone. you're right to uplift that. And it sounds like Moses is thinking the same thing. Moses said, did I conceive all this people? Did I bear them that you would say, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant? What, I'm supposed to be the parent here? Um, it sounds like Moses is feeling exactly what you are articulating in that sense, and perhaps even rejecting it to some degree in that questioning of it. Your thoughts? At the end, though, he says, I can't bear this alone. And so there's the sense that he's saying, do I... You know, you told me to take them out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else? Are there people who can help me? 
So it kind of leads into the next piece. That's right. We're going to come what back. What Moses to... is asking for. That's right. So we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Before we jump into that, though, I wanted to ask: Does this sound like Adam one or Adam two? Which set of virtues are we seeing here in this leader? What kind of a leader is this we are seeing? Is this Moses one or Moses two? The Moses of great agency and power and initiative, or that, or the one who is humble and duty bound? Duty bound. <laughs> to me, it's one presented with his limitations. Okay. I, he's used to being able to make things happen, and, and now everybody's miserable, mm-hmm. and he can't do anything about it, and that is misery to him. Mm, yeah. I think both Moses 1 and Moses 2 are like, you know, you mm. know, Moment of <laughs> <laughs> You don't want either one of them. You want Moses number three. They're overwhelmed. Both of them, because, like yeah. she said, the the first one is not able to act anymore, doesn't know what to do anymore, and the second one who feels that she's got the responsibility for the whole thing mm-hmm. cannot deal with it anymore. So it's for me the weight is heavy. Yeah, it's become way too heavy. Yeah. It's not in technical anymore. Interesting. And what is the next act? Is the question. Mm-hmm. The the exact question to ask, and so we'll continue moving forward. Bert was alluding to, hey look, he's not going to be alone anymore. Um, does somebody want to pick up reading now? We are on verse sixteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy of Israel's elders of whom you have experience as elders and officers of the people, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their place there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will draw upon the spirit that is on you and put it upon them. They shall share the burden of the people with you, and you shall not bear it alone. Okay, so that sense, somehow alleviating that aloneness of it. Um, It's interesting to think about... Moses as a character. We oftentimes think about Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest prophet of all Jewish tradition, this monolithic figure. And here in the text, even this is not even during Moshe's greatest challenges of the exodus and leaving Egypt and challenging Pharaoh and the people. This is after all of that. We get this interesting opening up of authority, sharing of authority. Um, Perhaps it's the reconstructionist in me who wants to call it a democratization of authority, that somehow these 70 elders are going to be part of the project with Moshe. Thoughts? I think it's before his uh, father-in-law appears to, uh, with another idea for him to uh, share the burden. Yeah. You're talking about in the... In the you talk about when he already, already, comes. We yeah. So, yeah, so Yitro is a ways back, before. It's already happened, he's already been there. Right. So it's interesting to think about Moses' humility there. I also thought about the moment of the burning bush, when Moses, the bush is saying, here, come speak to me, and Moses says, me, really, I'm supposed to be the, Mm -hmm. the grand one? He has great humility there too, yeah. I think probably we've all experienced that where we where we've had a great moment, whether it's a, a, a marriage or the birth of a child or graduating from school. Mm-hmm. But then it's the next part mm-hmm. where 
Mm-hmm. You know, you have to keep going. And, and the hardest part is to keep going. You get go from A to B to C to D. Mm-hmm. And because when you're doing the great thing, you have all this energy. You have your spirits are up, everyone's with you. But you have to plod through the next parts. That's when the hard, hardest part of life is. Excellent, yeah. Uh, God is a management consultant. <laughs> <laughs> he says, look, pick the best people from each of the clans, bring them together, share the responsibility, delegate authority. You can't do it alone. This is how you organize. God is management consultant. I like it. I like that turn of phrase. Other thoughts about this particular turn we have here? This is a precursor kind of to what later happens in rabbinic Judaism when authority gets spread out, even religious authority gets spread out amongst many other rabbis. And I wonder if we assume maybe this this was certainly redacted at a much later time not in the Talmudic times, but at a much, if that wasn't a consideration that all the authority, everything isn't just in Moses, but that other people, and in particular Moses' successors, mm-hmm. have authority. So, excellent. I'm glad you're taking us to this place of considering the history and the actual lived experience of post-Israelite Jewish mm-hmm. people. So, this 70 elders model... It's interesting to wonder when that may have made its way into this text, as we know this text has been redacted and changed and is not necessarily the exact verbatim word that it once was. Uh, This 70 model, this pops up again in the Talmud. This becomes the model for rabbinic leadership. I don't know, has anyone ever heard of the Sanhedrin? So if anyone has heard that word before, it actually, it's not even originally a Hebrew word. It comes from the Greek, from Sinbarion, and it's this model of some kind of unity, a body coming together. If you think about that prefix synth, synthesize, Sinbarion, Sanhedrin, this is the same linguistic construct we're seeing here in this word Sanhedrin. That Sanhedrin was this body of rabbinic elders, this court, that were the leadership. They were the political leadership, the religious leadership, and again, this is a group of people who would not have necessarily distinguished between political and religious leadership, but this was the council of sorts that uh, led, that provided leadership to rabbinic Judaism, to the Jews of the time of the Talmud. This is a model that we're seeing here that actually will persist through Jewish history and Jewish experience. One really important difference what is the basis for Moses' leadership? God. Moses, that's true. That's absolutely true. And I would suggest that the rabbis of the Sanhedrin would say that they are also doing, exercising their leadership in the name of God, with the direction of God. What other really important difference exists between Moses and his kind of leadership versus the rabbis? Supposedly, he spoke to God face to face. Prophecy. Exactly. It's this nature of prophecy that distinguishes it. The rabbis of the Sanhedrin, those 70 council, they don't assert to be prophets. They don't assert to have any kind of nevuah, this Hebrew word we have for prophecy, this kind of communication with God. Now, granted, Moses is, as 
We see in Devarim, we see also here, the greatest of all prophets. Never again, it says in Deuteronomy, the very end of the Torah says, never again would a prophet rise like Moshe. So, uh, I want to continue now. Excuse me, did you say that the Sanhedrin uh, existed before the uh, destruction of the temple? No, the Sanhedrin was post-destruction, but that model of 70. Yeah, well, but you're saying that they... Uh, I, I mean, they're just not sure how the uh, concept of the influenced the writing here in the children. I'm not sure it did. This model of having 70 elders is something that persists from before and from after. The construct of the Sanhedrin is a later construct, this Greek uh, overlay onto it linguistically that we see, but this idea of 70 elders who rule over something, who exercise power in this way, that's a really ancient idea. And it's not clear where that comes from, where that impacts the text here, and where that uh, exerts impact onto later leadership. You're absolutely right. The Sanhedrin did not go back and redact this um, to be 70, but this concept of the 70 that we get here as somehow this prototype, this model of what uh, shared leadership looks like is a really ancient one. That's the piece I'm trying to uh, uplift in that way. Does that is that clear? Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, does the gematria of seventy mean something? I'm Although sure it, it does. <laughs> it is seven times ten. Yes. And so those are two important. But how Jewish were they well, yeah. chosen? How did they did they elect themselves or? Did, Excellent question. The Sanhedrin and its leadership was, let me put it like this, their ideal was that this is part of this whole rabbinic project that descends from the line of Moses. It comes from this whole thing. The rabbis are very eager to paint themselves into this picture and into this story. The reality was a little bit more political than that. Um, we see rabbinic dynasties in the Talmud. We see the father and then the grandfather and the great-grandfather. We see these dynasties of power uh, that exert themselves through time and through space, through the different eras of the Talmud. So there are politics, too, is what I would say. It's an interesting combination. Here, the 70, as it mentions, are um, God talking about picking the 70. Um, gather 70 of Israel's elders who have experience as elders and officers of the people. Here it sounds a lot more like a meritocracy, like that experience is what is guiding it, is what is driving it. And then so, Moses gets to pick, so there And there's this piece of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it nepotism, but it is Moses getting to pick who exactly he thinks are the most experienced in that way. It's an interesting combination of models. Yeah. And uh, like he was saying, it's seven times ten, and seven is kind of the number for spirituality, which is Shabbat, Sheva, yes. And the ten is the leader. Mm -hmm. So perfect combination, balanced of both. Beautiful. There are beautiful ways of drawing what that means. This seven, this ten, these are hugely important numbers within the Jewish spiritual and religious consciousness and life. And so to have a uh, synthesis for our Sindarion, our Sanhedrin of those concepts, I think enacts and manifests a lot of the spiritual resonance that we talk about in these numbers. Yeah. It's also interesting that you brought up the seven uh, menorah, mm-hmm. the 
seven branches. And and but you said three and three with the, the middle kind of shamash, almost like um, Moses being the leader that is choosing his uh, representatives. So now we're back to, uh, that's a beautiful drosh. I didn't even think about that when I was going over some of this. But now we're back to this word of our parsha, Baha'alotacha, in your ascent. So here we have a manifestation in the people, in their leadership, their representative leadership of what that ascent means. Baha'alotacha, in your rising, in your ascent. Well, here is the ascent of the 70, of that seven-branched menorah, perhaps with Moshe at the middle. Beautiful drosh, I love it. Um, but this is definitely an anti-priestly uh, concept. Ah. The people who are writing this, you're saying, uh, uh, before the, the, the temple problems, uh, you think that uh, they'd be afraid to uh, uh, introduce something other than, because the priests were ruling at the time, weren't they? So... So let's keep in mind, again, who it is who's doing this writing and where were the locuses of power in this structure. The priestly caste, um, and where we are even in this whole story. We are in Ha'alotacha, right after Naso. We've just seen a whole bunch of priestly rules and injunctions and statutes and special laws. We just saw all of this piece about purifying the Levites for their temple service. Suddenly... This is quite something. Suddenly, we get the election of these 70 elders, these uh, sages of the people. That's a very interesting piece to rise up right in the middle of all of these rules about the priests and their statutes and their practices. Um, sometimes we see in the text these glimmering uh, counterbalances and counterbalances of power. To think about what are the politics here? Who is in authority? What kind of authority is it? These are all really central questions to ask. Um, the fact that we're getting some kind of a counterbalance here, a real shift away from the Levitical, this system of all of the Levites and all of their trappings, this is a remarkable <laughs> shift here. Thoughts about that? We talk about this system of government that we uh, enjoy in this country of checks and balances. Here it seems like some kind of leadership is balancing out the priestly leadership. I want to read, I want to continue real quickly. If somebody would read from verse 27. Well, actually, you know, from 26. I have a question before that. Yeah, go ahead. Moses could have picked the priests and didn't. Some of it he could have picked. Some of it was also who you descended from. Because some of it, think about Aaron and his sons. Some of it was by uh, descent. Right, but it doesn't say here at all. It just says pick elders. Ah, I see what you're saying. Yes. So that's an it interesting... It absolutely doesn't say... It, it doesn't forbid it. Yeah. But if the priests mm -hmm. had all the power mm -hmm. in putting this together, one would think that Moses would have then said, well, pick 70 priests. Sure, absolutely, which he, which he did not. He expressly did not. I want to read, can somebody pick us up from verse 26? We're going to see something interesting with these leaders. Two the, of the, go ahead. Two of the representatives, one named Eldad and the other uh, Medad, had remained in camp. Yet the Spirit rested upon them, 
they were among those recorded, but they had not gone out to the tent, and they spoke in ecstasy in the camp. An assistant ran out and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are acting the prophet in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord Moses restrained them. But Moses said to him, Are you brought up on my account? When all that Adonai's people were prophets, that Adonai put the divine spirit upon them. Moses then re-entered the camp together with the elders of Israel. Okay. Isn't that something? (laughs) So, it sounds like these 70 who Moses is selecting somehow get infected with, they catch a case of the nevuah, they catch a case of the prophecy, somehow. Not only do they, does it infect them, does it uh, enter into them, but that's okay. They are suddenly allowed to speak in whatever ecstasy this is, to speak prophecy, and somehow, that's okay. Some assistant, my translation says a youth, and some na'ar, sees this going on, and runs over and says, Oh my gosh, these two guys, they're acting like prophets in the middle of this. Two of the 70 representatives of that 70, they're suddenly ascending to be prophets themselves. Furthermore, Yoshua ben Nun, Joshua, son of Nun. Who is Joshua for us, just a reminder? He becomes the successor to Moses. He becomes the successor to Moses. Where do we see him earlier in Exodus? It's one of the um, um, 12 that thinks the land is good. That's right. He's one. He's one of the spies. The very beginning of where he comes in is actually in that incident. You remember the episode with Amalek, where Amalek attacks the tribe of Israel from behind. It's this sort of war crime thing, attacking all of the weak and infirm. Um, Yoshua, in that account, we remember that when Moses is lifting his hands, the battle goes toward the Israelites. When he lowers them, uh, they begin to lose. Well, Joshua's right in the middle of that epic, too. Joshua is the military commander. Joshua remains the military commander. He is Moses' successor, that's true. What we see from Joshua in the book of Joshua, we don't get it in the Torah, uh, Joshua is the one who leads the Israelites. They're almost, this group of bedraggled survivors of the, ex- of the Exodus becomes essentially a hardened shock force, and they lance out into the land, and they are able to win a lot of battles very quickly. Joshua is a very different model of leader than Moses. We never see, we don't see a whole lot about Joshua's prophecy, but we do see him as the Bible's in some way consummate military commander. So it's very interesting here. Now we have this 70, we have this power sharing. That power sharing, uh, might be, well, as Bert points out, is distinctly not priestly in nature, but sounds like it takes on glimmers of prophecy. And then the military commander doesn't seem to like it. Does this sound like any kind of contemporary government or contemporary... Uh, I mean, you could make a movie about this and put it on Netflix or something like that. This kind of uh, political intrigue, I would suggest, between the military commander, the priests, and their authority, and then also the prophets. Um, first Moshe as the, the consummate prophet, and then him sharing his prophecy. But what he does here is really remarkable. He says... That's okay. That's all right. He says, how wonderful would it be if all of B'nai Yisrael, if all of the Israelites could have some glimmer of that prophecy, some glimmer of that connection with God? Thoughts? Responses? Again, it uh, it suggests that 
This was written by people at a time when people were not too happy with the priesthood. <coughs> okay. Very good. Maybe there was, we're hearing, we're reading discontent with the priests in this piece. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking about the present and mm-hmm. how different would the world be if more of us were connected. Mm-hmm. That, what an amazing question to ponder. What would that mean if there were more of us who did experience what this text calls nivuah? It's hard to imagine in many ways. It really is. Um, it's a very democratic, kind of a democratic idea mm-hmm. that everybody could be a prophet. Yeah. The problem, of course, is, quote, false prophecy. Sure. <laughs> God made me do it. <laughs> and has been used as an excuse too many times. And that takes on politically dangerous uh, glimmers when we get into messianism. Um, but I don't want to go down that road today in particular. For another time, yeah. You know, it reminds me of uh, the executive director of the nonprofit law firm mm-hmm. that I worked at who was always saying, share credit. And um, it, it does not diminish your achievements when you give credit to somebody else. It raises you up, and so that was, you know, my formative, my formative, you know, first job years, and I found that in other venues to be the case. And so whether whether this will result in success or not, it is to me the ideal form of leadership. If somebody who says there's room for everyone to succeed, you know, lift everyone up. As a writer, I see now the kind of writer who's giving more credit. Fantastic! I'm gonna. Share your share your successes with more people, and then there are those who want to lift the ladder up and say, I, "Now I've got here, nobody else can." And to me, um, I, I don't see that one model or the other in, enhances a person's success. As what I see is, it makes you a happier person if you can share the, the success that you've had with others. So this piece that, um, in some ways, might even be. There's a there's an extent to which it's almost intuitive that oh yeah one can be happier as you mentioned if you can share in the journey if you can share in uh, the authority in some of those pieces yes it is important to maintain some semblance of cohesion of authority we see the people sort of all breaking into disunity we see the true perils of that in the book of judges um, but within that context one doesn't have to be the all uh, mighty all powerful absolute monolithic ruler. And the thing about that idea that this text is saying to us, that's a really revolutionary thing. In the ancient world, leadership was all about who was the most powerful and building great statues and monuments. Think about all of these ancient uh, building projects we see from the ancient Egyptians extolling the virtues of this pharaoh or that pharaoh. There isn't humility in building a sphinx to your honor. Um, that's not about sharing the glory and the authority with other people. This, what we're seeing here, is a really revolutionary idea about what authority can mean and that you can share authority without it being diminished. That authority is not necessarily a zero-sum quantity. This is not a concept that we get from other cultures in the ancient world. So what the Torah is saying here is actually fairly revolutionary. It might be something that we in our lives have experienced and now we can give voice to and articulate, but it's something that's uh, that's kind of remarkable in its context. Um, I want to wrap up by coming back to this 
idea of Moses 1 and Moses 2. Um, a couple of folks really said it that, okay, well, Moses 2 here, the really humble leader who's willing to share authority and be called into service and work out of a sense of duty, um, that that person is evoked by the struggles, by the difficulties of the people, by uh, all of the complaining. It's from Moses' uh, depth. We experience his uh, humility. He talks about being pain, feeling real anguish at the people complaining and pushing him. He doesn't rush out to say, no, it's not my problem. He doesn't run out to say, I'm the great Moses and I'm going to sick Joshua over here, the military commander on all of you, and I'm going to forcibly make this right. He feels this anguish and it changes him. It shifts him from the Moses one of the great leader who will come down and smash the tablets, who will go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go and lead them across the sea uh, with the sea on both sides of him. It's not that leader. Um, that leader gets transformed through this struggle. He gets transformed into somebody who has greater humility, who listens in a different way, who is willing to share power with these 70 elders, who is willing to say, wow, if they're also experiencing prophecy, what a blessing. That's great that all of you should be able to experience blessing. So that hardship that he experiences, it is painful and it is part of his tribulation, but it shifts him from this Moses 1 to Moses 2. And perhaps it makes him Moses 3, we'll explore in this. A Moses that is willing to exert his authority, to stand tall with the people, but to do so from humility. Um, in the Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan says that where you find the greatness of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the Blessed Holy One, that's where you find the humility of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. There is an idea there that greatness is intrinsically tied to humility. We're seeing this with Moses in that way. There's this idea called, if anybody has heard of this concept called Tzimtzum, we get this from the Kabbalists, this idea that for God to make creation, to make life, to create the world and all of these things, God actually had to pull back a little bit to retract God's self. God had to, had to exercise a little bit of humility in this sense. So here in this really ancient text, we're seeing a model for humility for selflessness within leadership, which is, as I mentioned, a really remarkable concept and pretty atypical for its time and for its context. So what I want to offer you all today, that uh, this is almost a paradox, this idea that one can achieve greatness through humility, through smallness. Um, it's a paradoxical concept, it really is. But I would encourage all of us to dwell with this paradox over the coming week, how it is that we can actually experience and exercise greater humility and greater uh, gentility, greater sensitivity in our relationships, in our lives, in the way in which we are all leaders in our context, and actually how that might make us greater at who we are in our families, in our community, and in our own lives. So to sit with this paradox of humility and greatness this week. So with that, I want to wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.